Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can find us on Twitter at PolicyCast, or subscribe on your channel of choice by visiting hkspolicycast.org. There are 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. That's a larger incarceration rate than any other country in the world. It's turned into big business with the government spending more than $80 billion a year on prisons. It seems, sometimes, that our nation's commitment to law and order is as fundamental to our collective identity as individualism. So it comes as no surprise that those who push back on that paradigm often face massive challenges. Today, we're joined by one of those people. Brian Stevenson is an HKS graduate and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, who's described recently by Archbishop Desmond Tutu as, quote, America's young Nelson Mandela. <laughs> He's the author of Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, and we're delighted to have him with us today. Brian, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Glad to be with you. That's uh, that's pretty heavy praise. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, 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 Bishop Tutu was being very kind. I think he was saying the young Nelson Mandela who represented unpopular clients in courts. I, mm-hmm. I think that was really his focus with that. But I'm I'm really thrilled uh, to 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 be doing the work that I do and and trying to advance uh, justice in this country. So you've stated uh, that. The United States has yet to fully reconcile its past, and uh, you look at South Africa, where um, you know they're s- still struggling with the the wreckage of apartheid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Germany, where they are still shamed by the idea of the Holocaust. Yet the United States tends to treat slavery and Jim Crow as kind of artifacts of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it important? Why is that important to the discussion of today's criminal justice system? Well, I think that mass incarceration in many ways is a function of our failure to talk honestly about the legacy of racial inequality. It's not just that, but I do think that's a component of it. Uh, We did not do uh, what we needed to do at the end of the Civil War in addressing the legacy of slavery. Slavery wasn't just forced labor. Mm-hmm. It was also um, sustained by myths. Uh, America was one of those few countries that wasn't a society with slaves. It became a slave society. We actually, in the South, legitimated slavery by characterizing people of color as people who weren't fully human, who were actually going to benefit from this benign uh, master-slave relationship. And those myths of inferiority were never addressed by the 13th Amendment, and that's why uh, slavery didn't end as much as it evolved. It turned into decades of terrorism and violence. The uh, era of lynching and convict leasing was profound Mm -hmm. and really traumatizing to people of color, and it left, again, a really severe shadow over the way in which we think about human worth. And that sent millions of people from the Deep South into communities like Boston and New York and Chicago and Detroit. And these people weren't uh, you know, looking for economic opportunity. They were actually uh, exiles. They were refugees from terror. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we had uh, Jim Crow and apartheid, uh, racial segregation. And, and again, we never really talked about what that legacy did to people. You can't humiliate people on a daily basis. You can't stigmatize and exclude and segregate people without uh, injuring them, without creating real challenges. Mm-hmm. And we didn't talk about that. We never committed ourselves to a process of truth and reconciliation. We just moved on or tried to move on. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems that I see with the last 40 years in this country is that I think the 
politics of fear and anger, which have led the prison population to go from 300,000 in the 1970s to 2.3 million today, uh, the, the, it has been deeply destructive in, in poor and minority communities. And I don't think we are particularly sensitive to that because we've never been sensitive to the consequences of racial inequality. Mm-hmm. You know, today, one in three black male babies born in the 21st century is expected to go to jail or prison. That wasn't true in the 20th century. That wasn't true in the 19th century. It's true today, and I think a just society ought to be screaming about that mm-hmm. and figuring out what we need to do to change that reality and to create some more balance and justice and fairness in mm-hmm. our in our criminal justice system. How does that legacy actually, you know, uh, present itself? It presents itself in a number of ways. I think there is a presumption of guilt and dangerousness that uh, black and brown people are born with in this country that follows them. Uh, there are these narratives out there uh, that undermine and challenge and complicate uh, lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we uh, have disproportionately high rates of expulsion and suspension in public schools. Uh, there are these kind of criminal narratives that get assigned to young kids of color. In fact, in the 80s, we started doing that to children. We characterized them as super predators. And that l- rhetoric led to putting thousands of children, some as young as 13 and 14 years of age, in the adult criminal justice system. And that um, idea, you know, continues to follow you. And it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, I'm, you know, I graduated from Harvard. I went to the law school and the Kennedy School. I've had a pretty successful career. And even still, I confront these presumptions. Right? Mm-hmm. I was sitting in a courtroom not too long ago in the Midwest uh, to do a hearing. And I hadn't been there before. And the judge walked out and he saw me sitting in court. And when he saw me sitting there, he said, hey, 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 you get out of this courtroom. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom uh, without their lawyers. You go wait for your lawyer. And I stood up and I said, Your Honor, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm Brian Stevenson, I am the lawyer. And the judge started laughing, the prosecutor was with him, he started laughing. And I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. Mm-hmm. And then my client came in, he was a young white kid who I was representing, and we did the hearing. But afterward, I was thinking to myself how exhausting it is to have to worry about these presumptions and the way they manifest themselves. And this is from a judge who has more power and discretion to act on presumptions than mm-hmm. most people do in society. Well, with something that is so embedded in our, in our society, how, is, how can it be overcome? Well, I think we have to tell the truth about uh, what these legacies represent. Uh, you know, uh, societies that have had to deal with transitional justice, where there have been decades of abuse and oppression, have recognized the first step is to tell the truth. And I think if we're good at truth-telling, then we can make people want to reconcile themselves to that truth. Mm-hmm. Only by um, giving voice to the horror of the Holocaust uh, can Germany actually uh, reconcile itself, find a way forward. And that's what you're seeing. There are monuments and markers and plaques everywhere. Mm -hmm. And they want the society to kind of be constantly aware so that we are constantly uh, uh, committed uh, to not replicating those mistakes. I think something like that should happen here. We've started putting up markers and monuments around slavery in the Deep South. We want to uh, mark spots where lynchings took place. We want to talk more honestly about uh, what Jim Crow and apartheid have done. And we want our system of justice to be more diligent in eliminating unconscious bias and and, uh, discrepancies and disproportionate sentencing in the criminal justice context. Your work seems to be predominantly in the South. Mm -hmm. Is that 
I, I can't imagine that's the only place where this is happening. Oh, no. And, and our work for kids, for example, is national. When we started challenging the uh, prosecution of adults, uh, excuse me, the prosecution of children as adults, we found ourselves in states that you wouldn't expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, California, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts mm-hmm. uh, has a terrible problem of prosecuting children as adults. You've got kids here who've been sentenced to die in prison, uh, just like you do in Michigan and in many states in the north. And so that's a national problem. The problems of of presumptive dangerousness and guilt are national problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problems of um, you know over policing and police abuse are national problems. Uh, there's an opportunity to talk in a direct way about these issues in the slate in, in the South because our our the legacy is so clear. I mean, we're still quote celebrating Confederate Memorial Day in mm-hmm. Alabama as a state holiday. We still romanticize and and I think. Um, under undermine a truthful discourse by telling a different story about these histories in the South. And so that's where we're starting, but I believe this is a national problem that will require a national response. Mm. This conversation is is ostensibly about justice, mm-hmm. but I'm curious what the role of empathy and compassion play in this discussion. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's really critical. I mean, you know, I've written this book, and, and the point of the book really is to try to get all of us to recognize that when we become less compassionate, when we become indifferent to the suffering of others, it's not just that we set others up to be victimized and hurt. Mm-hmm. We also set ourselves up to be, in my view, less human, uh, less complete. I'm persuaded that you know we are all more than the worst thing we've ever done. And we all need some space to recover from our worst acts. If you tell a lie, you're not just a liar. If you take something, you're not just a thief. Even if you kill someone, you're not just a killer. But I'm also uh, persuaded uh, that um, the opposite of poverty in this country is not wealth. I've come to the conclusion that because of structures and systems, I believe the opposite of poverty is justice. And when Mm -hmm. we commit ourselves to justice, then and only then can we create the kind of reforms that I think a lot of us would see. And finally, I think that we have to recognize that we don't get judged based on how we treat powerful people, rich people, privileged people. In my view, you judge the character of a society, uh, the commitment to the rule of law, the civility of society by how you treat the poor, Mm -hmm. uh, the incarcerated, the condemned, the marginalized. And in that respect, I think we all have an interest in creating more justice, but also in being more human and aware of our humanness, which only comes uh, when we find ways to be more thoughtful about what it means to be compassionate and decent uh, and just. Tell me what the uh, Equal Justice Initiative focuses on. Sure. Uh, So the Equal Justice Initiative is a private nonprofit law office in Montgomery, Alabama, Uh, We represent um, people on death row. We represent kids prosecuted as adults. We do a lot of work around criminal justice reform. Uh, But we also have a new project on race and poverty uh, where we produce materials aimed at trying to get a different conversation going about what the legacy of racial inequality has done. Um, We invite people to to go to our website where they can learn more about it. You can visit Montgomery. We have tours and programs and materials. Uh, And it's just a start in hopefully developing a more truthful uh, kind of reckoning with the challenges that we face in this country around justice. 
So policy is often not just a question of what should be done, but what can be done. I know mm-hmm. that a number of our listeners will listen to this and hear, you know, this is something that is actually important mm-hmm. and they want to take action. Yeah. Uh, w- what is actually on the table? Yeah. Well, I think there are a lot of policy initiatives right now. I- I'm encouraged because there have recently been shifts in the political and the politics of crime and punishment. You're seeing people from both uh, political parties talking about the need to uh, not just be tough on crime, but to be smart on crime or right on crime. And that's mm-hmm. created some movement. And I think we could reduce the prison population in this country by 50% if we eliminated some of these very misguided mandatory sentences, which have been a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we started thinking about drug dependency differently, a lot of countries look at drug dependency and drug use as a healthcare issue rather than a criminal justice issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of people in jails or prisons for drug dependency or drug possession. They don't need to be there. They're not a threat to public safety. And I think that provides an immediate policy opportunity. The Attorney General has, has initiated some policy reforms that I think are positive. I'd like to see those uh, initiated at the state level. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we have to hold politicians accountable. I mean, for 40 years, we've been silent, and nobody running for office has ever used the word rehabilitation or recovery mm-hmm. or or redemption or restoration when talking about punishment and criminal justice. We've got to force them to deal with those concepts if we want to have a a more healthy and, I think, more just society. You mentioned that you believe that the opposite of poverty is actually justice. Mm -hmm. Um, That seems to go beyond just the racial Mm -hmm. um, component. how how can that be achieved? I mean, we, we talk about getting money out of politics, getting yeah. money out of everything. Criminal justice system seems inextricably linked to it. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's right. I mean, we do have a system, our criminal justice system, that you know, treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. But that ought not be acceptable to any of us. Mm-hmm. And I think... You know, justice is a concept that sometimes requires us to be ashamed of our failures, to be honest about our failures. And a lot of times our instinct, rather than to be honest about our failures, is to just simply throw money at situations and never acknowledge our complicity in creating structures that have been damaging. And um, that's why I talk about the opposite of poverty being just. I think we've got to be more explicit about acknowledging Uh, the mistakes we make. We make mistakes all the time in the criminal justice context. Uh, For every 10 people who have been executed in this country, we've identified one innocent person who was wrongly convicted and has been exonerated. That's a shameful error rate. It's an error rate that we would not tolerate in most areas of public life. If for every 10 planes it took off, one would crash, none of us would fly. But instead of confronting our fallibility, we continue to persist in executing people And maybe we'll throw some money at the people who have been wrongly convicted, maybe, and then think that we've somehow done all we need to do. I don't think that's adequate, and I don't think that's responsible. And ultimately, I think uh, being willing to acknowledge our failures, our unfairness, our our injustice when we have been uh, functioning poorly is going to be key to our capacity to get closer to justice and to do the kinds of things that are necessary to eliminate structural poverty. Well, Brian Stevenson, thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. Very happy to be with you. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. 